The scripture reading this morning will be 1 Corinthians 15, 16 through 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 16 through 18. And it reads, For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Thank you. You may be seated. happy to be with you today. I'm very grateful for your presence, as we always are. Thankful for the beautiful singing that we've had, for the very fine prayers for the men who waited on the table in such a fine, respectable way. I'm always very grateful for each of these men who lead us in our worship service, and happy to have you. If you're visiting with us, you're always a welcome guest at the Broadway congregation, and encourage you to be with us again tonight at 6 o'clock. This, of course, is a festive time of the year. It's always a time that we look forward to, and we enjoy our visitors as they come our way. We have 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as a lesson text today, and there are a couple of things I'd like to make mention out of this particular passage, and, and it has a phrase in it. I don't know if you caught it or not, but it has a phrase that really caught my attention, and it's a phrase that I've seen a number of places. I don't know that I've spent as much time thinking about it in 1 Corinthians 15 as I should have, verses 16 through 18, but it certainly is a phrase that I want to talk about today. In fact, it'll serve as the springboard of what we want to learn from the pages of the Bible. Before I actually tell you what phrase I have in mind, I'd like to just reminisce just a little bit about the old country cemetery where we were raised and where we lived back in Middle Tennessee and meant a lot to us. It was a place where once a year we'd have what's called Decoration Day. They may not do that in this part of the country, but one day out of the year was always a special day. Families would come and they would place flowers at the graves of loved ones and then a preacher would be invited to come and speak. I've spoken a number of times on Decoration Day at the cemetery. There is one epitaph that's in that cemetery that I'm thinking about, and I'm sure it's in every cemetery everywhere, and those cemeteries that you are familiar with, and that's this expression, asleep in Jesus. And I found it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I don't know how many tombstones have that written on their surface, asleep in Jesus. A lot of them, I suspect. And I guess I wonder about that expression not only what it means, but do I deserve that kind of expression, asleep in Jesus? Simply because it's written on someone's tombstone, I wonder if they deserve that, asleep in Jesus. And you saw that in verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Now this 1 Corinthians chapter 15 passage bears some consideration because it talks about the resurrection of the dead, which is paramount in that particular chapter. It's a very important concept in New Testament Christianity and our faith that the dead will be raised. All will be raised, John chapter 5. Some will be raised to walk in, walk in life with Christ, eternal 
glory, and some will be raised to eternal condemnation. There's another important Bible passage that I'd like to turn to that relates this same point, and that second coming of Christ and the events that would transpire, and that's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So I ask that you turn to that passage, and I'll be brief in my comments, but it's hard to talk about these matters without thinking of this passage. The passage I have in mind, as I said, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and it's about verse 18, 13 through 18. These passages that talk about the end of time and the resurrection and the second coming of Christ and the day of judgment, we kind of use a special word that describes all these particular events. It's called eschatology. These are what the scholars call eschatological type passages, the study of the end of time. I know it's a big word, but it sort of tells us what we're getting at when we look at passages such as this. And I have to tell you that it doesn't matter where you are in 1 Thessalonians or 2 Thessalonians, Paul's referring to this. No matter what chapter you're studying, you're studying about the second coming of Christ if you're in 1 Thessalonians or if you're in 2 Thessalonians. But I think a classic text on that would have to be 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, an eschatological passage, a passage talking about the second coming of Christ and the end of time. Now I begin at about verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Now I have to stop there in verse 13. He talks about being asleep there in verse 13, but what really has got my attention is the idea of those who have no hope. And I'm sorry to tell you today that there are people out there who have no hope. Now biblical hope is a confident expectation to receive. And that's what we have in Jesus Christ. A full confident expectation to receive the promises of God. But there are some out there who don't have that hope. They don't have a full, confident expectation to receive. And they live without hope, and it's a sad life to live. A life with no hope, of no hope of the hereafter. But if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Verse 14. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. Now verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Tells us a lot about the second coming, doesn't he? In both of these passages, whether it be 1 Corinthians chapter 15, or whether it be 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you find that reference to asleep. And what it has reference to there is the idea of the body going back to the remains from which it came. The decomposition of the body. And if you think about that which has died and passed on from us, we see that the body does look as if it were asleep. And thus a figurative description of the human body when death does come upon it. There is a separation of that which is physical 
from that which is spiritual, the soul of man, and in turn, the meaning of death itself. But it does appear to be, with regard to our physical representation, that that physical remains is asleep. And the figurative expression has attached itself to that particular event in our passing. After all, Abraham slept with his fathers, or David slept with his fathers. This becomes an expression of the physical body dying and the spirit passing from this body to life eternal. It should not be associated with the soul being asleep. He does not say that the soul is asleep. He says the body is asleep. The soul does not sleep, as we're going to study in a moment. The soul continues to live on and on and on. And in fact, the soul of man never dies. We'll look at Luke chapter 16 in just a brief moment. But I want to talk a little bit about, now that I understand this, what it means to be asleep in Jesus. And he uses that phrase twice, asleep in Jesus. And I want to know what that epitaph means. I've seen it in every cemetery. I've read it in the pages of the Bible. And I want to ask the question myself, and I want you to ask the question of yourself. Should that be written on your tombstone? Or for one to say, asleep in Jesus, would that be a misrepresentation of your life? For one to be asleep in Jesus, the physical body dying, the soul going on into eternity, fully aware, fully active, fully conscious, one would have to live in Jesus. For me to die in Jesus and to be asleep in Jesus, I'd have to live in Jesus. It would be a representation of great proportion for someone to live for themselves and in turn never live for Jesus and then to put on their tombstone asleep in Jesus. Wouldn't that be a misrepresentation? Indeed it would. Before they can say of me, I'm asleep in Jesus, and before this passage could apply to me of having hope, which is given to me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I'm going to have to live in Jesus. John told us very clearly that life was in Christ, John 8 and 24. Without this confident faith and this confident trust in God and in Christ, I cannot be pleasing in the sight of God, Hebrews 11 verse 6. Without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that is rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Very clear that faith is a major plank in the Christian platform. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 4, about the life of Abraham. How that Abraham was justified by an obedient faith. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5, verse 1. Without this faith, we can't be pleasing to God. To be asleep in Jesus, I must be a person of great faith who has confident trust in what the Word has said and what Jesus has promised, and I apply it to my life. But I'll tell you this. To be asleep in Jesus, i got to live in Jesus, and to live in Jesus means I've got to repent of my sins. Twice Jesus said in Luke chapter 13, once in verse 3 and once in verse 5, 
Except you repent, ye shall all likewise perish. The Greek word there involved in repentance is a word, matanoeo. It simply means to turn and change my life around. I was walking in this direction, but I've turned, I've changed, made my life walk in a different direction. Now I'm walking in this way. Spiritually speaking, it means that I'm no longer living a life of sin. I'm now living a life which God has directed in His Word. I changed. Paul would say in Acts chapter 17, verse 30 and 31, Now God commands all men everywhere to repent. Verse 30. And He's appointed a day in which He'll judge the world. Verse 31. It could never be a true representation of my life on a tombstone to say asleep in Jesus if I never live for Jesus, if I've never repented of my sins. Oh, we can talk about it, we can talk about it. And isn't it a heartwarming thing to put that on a tombstone, but it would be a gross misrepresentation. If I'd never repented of my sins and followed the teaching of Christ. But I'll tell you this, it's not enough to have faith in Christ, it's not enough to be a person who's repented of their sins, they must confess their faith before others. Paul makes mention in that great section with regard to the Jews, Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, he says in that passage, Romans 10 and verse 10, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. If I'm not the kind of person who can make that great confession as Peter did, Matthew chapter 16, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that I am not in Jesus and in Matthew chapter 10, 32 and 33, it makes it very clear that that's got to be the routine of my life. Now, I think Romans 10 and 10 is talking about a point in time in which I make that confession. But I think also Matthew 10, 32 and 33 is talking about that kind of attitude throughout the course of my life that I'm confessing Him as I go along. When you come to Acts chapter 8 and you see that story about the Ethiopian he said, stop, here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Now he believed at that particular point in time. Now the evangelist that came up into the chariot said, you understand what you read? And he said, how can I let someone explain it to me? And he started at that very scripture and began to teach unto him about Jesus. He said, now stop, here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? The point that I'm making, he already believed, but he hadn't been baptized. He wasn't in Jesus yet. Even though he had come to an understanding of who and what Jesus was, he saw the need to act out of obedient faith and be baptized. Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and did what Jesus had commanded all men everywhere to do. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. That's the reading of Mark 16 and verse 16. The purpose of faith is in this culminating act of obedience. I might say it this way. Our faith actually becomes actualized. It becomes doable demonstrative. It shows that we have that kind of faith that we're, be, we're willing to be baptized into Jesus Christ for the remission of our sins. It's such an important act and such an important step 
that it really is the line of demarcation between the two types of people that are in this world. And they all fall within one of the other groups. What kind of people are there in this world? There are those who are lost because they are not in Christ, and then there are those who are saved because they have been obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, he tells us, I was turning that great prison epistle about verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now because of that particular act, the act of faith, and that faith being of such a nature that it produces uh, obedience in my life to confess and to repent and to be baptized, now I'm a child of God. And the Bible is filled with Bible passages which talk about being in Christ. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 11, And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. That is, in other words, how it's going to take place, to be in Christ. And time doesn't give us the opportunity to run down all the passages that talk about the in Christ relationship, which Bible writers are referencing over and over again. But I pick for your consideration too. I'm in Ephesians 1, I'm in verse 4. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. And also we'll read verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Now, both of these passages talk about being in Christ. And the Holy Spirit did not word this haphazardly. It is precisely given to us to help us understand the new relationship that I have with Jesus Christ upon obeying the gospel of Christ. Before my obedience to the gospel, I'm outside of Christ. But now because of my obedience to the gospel, I am in Christ. And that prepositional phrase is used over and over and over again in the pages of the New Testament, which talks about the new relationship that I sustain with Christ. Sometimes Paul would say, I'm united with Him, or I am with Him, or I am in Him. They're constantly referencing the new relationship I have because of my obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, it's very clear you can't do this without faith. But what if that's all I had? I certainly can't consider myself to be in Christ if I just have an intellectual type of assent. Yes, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. And it's very clear that I can't do this without repentance. But I can tell you, you can have faith and you can have repentance and still not be in Jesus Christ. And it's very clear that I must have a confession of faith and express a confession of faith in Jesus Christ. But it's very clear that I'm still not in Jesus Christ. I can do all that and not be a child of God. It is essential that I'm immersed in water for the remission of my sins. And that's what that immersion, that baptism means. And I think that you can take it 
Basically, as a rule of thumb, that every time baptism is referenced in the New Testament, it's talking about an immersion in water. Now, there are times when other elements are used. And when another element might be used in that New Testament passage, then he's talking about that element. But if another element is not used, he has baptism in mind. Baptism in water for the remission of sins. And that particular element is described for us over and over again. The point that we must come to understand. You can write on that tombstone asleep in Jesus all you wish. But you'll not be asleep in Jesus unless you lived in Jesus. And I've outlined before you very carefully and precisely what it means to be in Jesus. To live in Jesus. That is the only way one can be asleep in Jesus when they die from this earthly walk of life. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'll tell you another epithet that I have read in a cemetery. Because of my life's work, I've been in a lot of them. I've talked to a lot of people, and I've been in a lot of cemeteries, and I think I've experienced just about everything you can experience in one. But one statement that I see on a lot of stones at rest, at rest. I wonder if that could be placed on my stone. Could that be placed on yours? I think that's a passage that comes to us from Revelation chapter 14, verse 13. There the statement is, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. From now on, yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Being at rest, I don't believe everybody who dies is going to be at rest. And I don't believe simply because it's put on a tombstone, it means the parted are at rest either. What does that really mean to be at rest? Well, as the Bible writer said, Revelation chapter 14, to rest from our labors. And as a child of God, I look forward to that where I may rest from the earthly life in which we've lived and the struggles, the turmoils, the difficulties that we've had to face from place to place and from time to time being at rest and at peace. But not everybody's going to be at rest, nor is everybody going to be at peace. And I'll tell you why. Jesus told about an individual named Lazarus. And his name comes up in... Luke chapter 16. And Lazarus was a poor beggar. He was of the poorest state. And there he was carried and was laid at the rich man's gate. And the dogs came and licked his sores. I don't know if he was so weak he couldn't pick up a stick and knock the dogs away or whether there were just so many of them, he just couldn't beat them back. Perhaps there was some therapeutic value to this, I do not know. 
but I know that Lazarus died. And there also came a time when the rich man died. In verse 19, it says of this man and this rich man and this poor man. Now there was a rich man, verse 19, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. Doesn't really fit the mode or style of a parable here. He says there was a certain rich man. He identifies specifically the poor man by name. And a poor man, Lazarus, was laid at his gate covered with sores, longing to be fed with crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. It's a loathsome picture, isn't it? of how low that a person can be. And here's a rich man clothed in purple. There's no mistake as to calling the color of his clothing. Purple would be the color of royalty. Purple would be the color of great wealth. Why, they would take the murex, which was a shellfish. When they would crack open that fish, they would extract the membrane from the murex, and they would make from that the purple dye. And you would take the cloth from the looms and you would immerse them into the purple dye to make sure that the cloth would take all of the color. And through that painstaking process, a beautiful purple piece of material would be made. And only the wealthy could afford clothing like that made out of purple. Now there was a certain rich man that was clothed in purple. And he fared sumptuously every day, had the best food. Lived in the best kind of house, had the best clothes, and he died. And at his gate was a poor beggar who would have been satisfied just to eat the crumbs that fell from his table. And his lacerated body was of such an extent that the dogs came and licked his sores. It's a terrible situation. Every day, the rich man would open up the gates, come through the gates, and there's a poor beggar at his gate. I suppose never concerned about him. He came to the rich man's gate, and he was brought there just begging because he's that low. How hard... And how calloused can a person really become? Now the poor man died, verse 22, and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried in Hades. He lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham afar away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am agony in this flame. I'm in verse 24. You ought to read Luke 16, verse 24. Simply because it says at rest on a tombstone doesn't make it so. All people are not going to be at rest. There will be some who will rest from their labors, Revelation 14 and 13. But there will be some who will in agony have to face an eternity of unfaithfulness, of poor choice, bad decisions, 
with regard to their rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm in agony in this flame. I'm tormented in this. I need some help. I need some relief. And as you go on down through Luke chapter 16, there's no relief in sight. He says, now send somebody over here. Send Lazarus over here to cool me. He hadn't changed a bit. You know what? He still said, have him over here wait on me. Almost as if he were in some kind of restaurant sitting at the table and the waitress is supposed to bring him a cool glass of water. Well, it's not going to work that way in eternity. Just because it says it rests on the tombstone doesn't make it so. He's facing suffering and eternity of that. I don't suppose there's any way for us to get our heads wrapped around the intensity of that, the overwhelming nature of eternal condemnation and being lost. I want to so live my life that it can be set on my tombstone at rest. He's resting from his labors. But if I'm not a child of God and a faithful child of God, then of course that cannot be so. Well, there's more I'd like to say about this. We think about that rich man, but before we are so critical of that rich man, we better look at ourselves. And we better ask ourselves the question, how many opportunities did I pass by? And somebody was out there saying, teach me the Word of God, but I didn't have the time. Or somebody was out there saying, I need help. I really do need help, but I ain't got the time to help you. Before I'm too critical of the rich man, I need to look at myself and see just what kind of person I have been. And I want to tell you right now, I don't want to have to face what that man faced. But I will if I'm not a faithful child of God. In John chapter 15, there's a beautiful passage there, and it's a sermon within itself about bearing fruit. I am the vine, and ye and my Father is the vine dresser. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Do you see that fruit-bearing idea? You're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, verse 4, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. We must continue to be in a faithful relationship with Jesus Christ and bear fruit. Now, I've heard a lot of preachers sometimes preach on this particular matter, and they're always liken it to evangelism and teaching others, and I'm sure that Jesus had that in mind. But I think also in addition to that, the bearing fruit is the living of the Christian life, Galatians chapter 5, and living the fruit of the Spirit. I don't think it's limited to personal evangelism, though it certainly is included. But he's talking about living for Christ. If I do not live for Christ, I'm a child of God. But if I'm not a faithful child of God, then you're not going to be able to put at rest on my tombstone. Because there is a Hadean world awaiting for all of us. Some of us will because of faithfulness be in paradise. Some of us because of unfaithfulness and wicked will be in torment. And one will be tormented in that flame and there's no relief. There's no relief. Will it say at rest on your tombstone? Will it be true? 
I have just a minute or two, and I'd like to use that time as much as I possibly can. There's a passage in Acts chapter 9 that I'd like to look at, and there's another statement that I have seen on tombstones. Acts chapter 9 is the passage. It's about a woman, a remarkable character. I'm amazed at her. I really am encouraged by her life. Her name's Dorcas. And you'll find the story of Dorcas in Acts chapter 9, about verse 36 through 43. And I have time just enough to paraphrase a little bit about this passage of Scripture. And there's something that is said of Dorcas that I've seen on tombstones. Now, as Peter was traveling through those regions, he came down to the saints who lived in Lydia. And about verse 36, now in Joppa, they're tracing the steps of Peter. There was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. Dorcas. And I think I've seen a statement like that or two on a tombstone here and there. Full of good works. And I just wondered if the decedent was truly full of good works, or was that a misrepresentation as well? And it happens at this time that she fell sick and died. And when they'd washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. I'm in verse 38. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, Do not delay in coming to us. So Peter arose and went with them. When he arrived, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed and turning to the body said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. What makes me think of this unusual event in the book of Acts? The fact that she was full of good works. She was continually working and helping. And what was she doing? She was a seamstress type person. She was making clothing for people who needed clothing. She was using her hands. And she was helping those who were in need. And the widows gathered around Peter. And they're showing the clothing that she made. Look at what she's done. She's done this. She's done that. And they were weeping because they had lost such a dear one that was full of good works. What was she? She was a seamstress. I wonder what she looked like. Bible doesn't say what she looked like. I don't have any idea. I guess I have some idea. I have the idea in my mind. I could be totally wrong about this particular matter, but an elderly lady, swarthy type of complexion, probably wrinkled in face, perhaps bowed a little in back. But it doesn't tell us what she looked like because it doesn't matter what she looked like. What matters was what she was like on the inside. She was full of good works. And as a seamstress, she would do what she could to help people 
who were in need. And there's some original wording there that would help us understand something of the things which she did. I'll not go into the technicalities of that, but the point is she was making clothing and special clothing. Not fancy clothes, but clothes that people had to wear on an everyday basis. And she would help them with that particular matter. Full of good works. Sort of like us, though. We're more concerned about what we look like on the outside. Now, when it comes to Christmas, we understand that the most important part of the package is on the inside. If we were at Christmas time, like we are every other day of the week, we would think why we would just look at the beautiful wrapping paper and the bow on the outside and just admire that because of what it looks like on the outside. But we know that the most important part of that Christmas present is not on the outside, it's on the inside. And that's the way it is with people. The most important part of that person is on the inside. What kind of person that they are. Are they using their talents to help other people? As a Christian person, she used her talents. She was a seamstress. As a Christian person, what kind of talent are you using for the Lord? And you have them. You see that hand right there? That right hand. Isn't that an amazing thing? That right hand. No piece of machinery is equal to it. There's nothing greater than a person's hand. And there's no computer equal to it. They try to replicate it and produce it as well as they can. And they can do amazing things to reproduce the human hand. But it's not like the hand that God gave you. Let me ask you this. Which would you rather have? Would you rather have one that man produces? Or would you rather have the hand that God gave you? I'd rather have the hand that God gave me. Because there's nothing equal to it in what it can do. But when you have that hand hooked up to a heart that's flowing with love, what amazing things can be done to help people who are really in need. And Dorcas was a person who used her hands because those hands were hooked up to a heart of love. And she helped people who were in need. And she was full of good works. And when I go through a cemetery and I look on those tombstones, I sometimes wonder when I see that on the stone, full of good works. Can that be said of you? Can that be said of me? I'd like to talk a little more about this. I know my time is gone, and you've listened so patiently. You always do with regard to these particular matters as I struggle the best I can to try to express what the Bible has to say and to motivate us to higher levels of faith and greater levels of service, myself being the primary one who needs it the most. What will it be said in your tombstone? Will it be said... This person's full of good works. Will it be said, this person's at rest now. They can rest from their labors. Can it be said, asleep in Jesus? I pray it will, that it can truly be said, this person now rests. This person's asleep in Jesus Christ because of their obedience to the gospel of Christ. And I've outlined before you today what it means to become a Christian. 
to repent of sin and confess faith, to be an individual who's been baptized into Christ for the remission of sins, through an act of faith confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Or it may be that you need to repent of sins. Then do it today. Won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.